I'm going to reference a movie about the Exodus, but today I'm not going to pick on Charlton Heston. I like to pick on Charlton Heston for the movie The Ten Commandments, even though you probably shouldn't pick on it. It's a, it's a great movie. It really is. It's all, all six hours of it are fantastic. Um, it's not really six hours long, but when you watch it, sometimes it feels like that. Uh, how many of you have ever seen the DreamWorks movie Prince of Egypt? Have you ever seen that? If you haven't seen the DreamWorks movie Prince of Egypt, you should. Um, I have the DVD. I will loan it to you if you want to watch it. It is a wonderful work. It's, it's animated, but it's, it's got a lot of music in it. It's almost like classic Disney that the music is actually good, you know. Um, there is a section in the movie where Moses has just killed the Egyptian who was oppressing the Hebrews. If you remember the story of the Exodus, uh, Moses is being raised in Pharaoh's household, but he's not Egyptian. And one day he goes out to see the Hebrews working um, because they're toiling under slave labor under Pharaoh. And he goes out to see them and he sees an Egyptian uh, beating a Hebrew. And Moses looks around to see that no one sees what's going on and he kills the Egyptian. Buries him in the sand. Well, they take some artistic license with this in the movie and Moses kills this man and he runs off and he flees Egypt. Well, once he arrives in Midian, which is where he ends up going, um, he in the movie he drives off some... some thieves and some bandits from the flocks of what is eventually going to be his father-in-law. And he goes to meet his father-in-law and celebrate. And uh, he's in the movie, he's sitting there talking uh, with his father-in-law and he's given basically this sob story of how he ended up where he was. And his father-in-law tells him, you have a problem of perspective, uh, Moses. Uh, and Moses says, what are you talking about? And the, the, they launch into this song called Look at Your Life Through Heaven's Eyes. And there is one line in this song where Jethro looks at Moses and says, you can never tell what a man is worth by what he builds or buys. You can never see with your eyes on earth. You must look through heaven's eyes. In other words, he's telling Moses, you're looking at the short-term picture Moses, that right now you're seeing yourself in this sob story that everything is wrong. You, you just, in the movie, he didn't know he was a Hebrew. In the Bible, he does. He had just found out that he's, he's not who he thought he was and he's just killed a man and he's left everything he's ever known and things are just horrible. And his, his about-to-be dad is like, no, man, things are great. You just saved my daughter's life. You saved my flocks. It looks to me like you've got a safe place to live. You've got food in front of you. And it looks like God is good. You're looking with life through the long, wrong lenses. Well, things eventually do get rougher for Moses, but Jethro's lesson is well learned, that Moses has learned to look at the long picture. He's learned to look at the... He's learned to look at his life through heaven's eyes. And I could not study Revelation 2 verses 8 through 11 without playing this song in my head. Because that's kind of the point of this passage. That I was sitting there in my office listening to the soundtrack from Prince of Egypt while I'm working on this 
sermon because that's what Jesus is trying to tell the church at Smyrna. So if you will open your Bible to the second chapter of Revelation, we're only going to read four verses this morning. We're going to read 8 through 11. So if you'll stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to just read those verses and then we're going to talk about what Jesus had to say to this church. Verse 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand these words and to be faithful by looking at life through the eyes of heaven. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. These four verses are very interesting to me. Because throughout all four of these verses... You get, some, you get to see some pretty interesting juxtapositions. And what I mean when I say that is you see something that looks one way, but then Jesus turns around and says it's actually something different. That your perspective is wrong. That what you're looking at is not what it seems to be. And so Jesus is setting the record straight to this church in Smyrna. And so first what I want us to do is I want us to identify a few things that Christians should view differently than the rest of the world at large. Um, And that is first, well actually, we'll just list all three of them. We should look at poverty differently, we should look at death differently, and we should look at victory uh, differently. Uh, Let me give you a little bit of history of the city of Smyrna um, so that we can see what's going on here. That's actually going to make a big difference in interpreting how Jesus is speaking to them. The city of Smyrna, as a city had a reputation for being a very beautiful city. And there was a good reason that it had this reputation. Uh, It was located on the slopes of a beautiful mountain. And today, the modern city of Izmir still is. uh, That little parts of this city still remain. Um, That is at the foot of this mountain. uh, And it was one of only a few cities in this area that was actually planned before it was built. Uh, You've been to Savannah, so things are, you know, they're all in squares, right, when you go there. That that was a, Savannah is a triumph of city planning. That when you're in the old part of the city, you can tell they engineered the way the city is set up. Smyrna was kind of the same way. It was actually planned Uh, The reason that this was the case, this was not always the case in Smyrna, is that Smyrna was actually three to four hundred years before this letter was written, had actually already been burned to the ground one time. Smyrna had been totally destroyed. uh, And then, almost kind of like a phoenix, rises from the ashes, that it gets rebuilt So when Jesus is addressing this church and he says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? Remember, angel, uh, we're reading this in Galatians. We're reading this in Revelation as interpreting angel as Jesus is writing this to the pastor of the church. 
That does not mean that everywhere in Scripture you see angel. That means this is not a supernatural creature. This is just a pastor. No. But in Revelation, the word angelos in Greek makes more sense as pastor. Um, So to the pastor of the church in Ephesus, right? These, uh, excuse me, Smyrna, right? These things say the first and the last who was dead and came to life. That's interesting because the city had done the same thing. The city has already died one time and come back to life. And that was something that Smyrnans were very proud of. That was part of their city culture. That they would have told you, hey, did you know a few hundred years ago, this city was dead. It was gone. It had been totally wiped out. And now look, someone came and rebuilt us after we were totally destroyed and now we're more glorious than we were before. That's an interesting picture, isn't it? That that was Smyrna's history. That was Smyrna's identity. Um, So Smyrna had already been dead and was now alive again. Smyrna as a city... Also boasted one of the oldest alliances with Rome. Uh, Rome as an empire and Rome as a city. Listen to what Jesus says where he says, I know your works. Now, if you're reading a New American Standard or maybe an NIV or an English Standard, you won't see that it says works because the oldest manuscripts don't include the word works. It just says, I know your tribulation and poverty. Um, But if you've got the New King James, it'll say, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you're rich. Jesus is saying, hey, I know the suffering, and we'll get to poverty in a second, that all of you in this church are enduring. And there was a reason why the church at Smyrna was enduring above average persecution because of this oldest alliance with Rome that they had before Rome was ever really an empire Smyrna was already on their side Smyrna was already an ally they loved Rome Smyrna also within one city had temples to honor Zeus the goddess Sibyl and a temple to the Roman emperor they were very religious They were extremely involved in the Roman religious cult. In fact, that they bid against other cities in Rome or in the Roman Empire for one of the very first temples to the Roman emperor. They wanted it that bad that they fought to build a temple to the Roman emperor in their city. They were extremely devoted to the Roman cult. So you can imagine... Whenever this Christian religion starts cropping up, Smyrna was probably not a very friendly place for Christians. Because Rome viewed Christians as atheists. The reason that Rome viewed Christians as atheists is because Rome had a pantheon of gods that they recognized. And if you worshipped a god unrecognized by Rome... They just followed it to its logical end and said, well, if you're not worshiping any of our gods, you're not really worshiping a god. So you're worshiping nothing. So you must be an atheist. They viewed Christians as atheists. And if you go down through history, whenever the Roman Empire fell, 
Romans at that time even still blamed Christians as atheists. They said if you had been worshiping the gods, Rome would not have fallen. If you had kept worshiping Zeus, if you had kept worshiping the Roman emperor gods, if you had kept worshiping Mars, if you had kept worshiping Diana, if you had kept worshiping all these gods that kept us safe for all these years, the empire wouldn't have fallen. They were very, very, very devoted to worshiping their Roman religious pantheon. And Christians did not do that. So, Smyrna was not a nice place for Christians to live because of their religious devotion to Rome. And if that wasn't bad enough, look at the next thing Jesus says in verse 9. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The Jewish community that lived in Smyrna hated Christians as well. And there was a sizable Jewish community in Smyrna. Uh, Since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, that would have been right around 20 years before Revelation was written and delivered to the churches, Jewish life had been getting tough. Because once the temple was destroyed, there had been uprising. That's what led to the temple being destroyed in AD 70 was there were Jewish uprisings. There was a mass suicide at one point of Jews who refused to worship the Roman gods. So there was that. There was general unrest between Jews and the Romans. And there was also unrest in the Jewish community because Christians were still referring to themselves as Jews. A lot of the early church was made up of Jews who recognized Jesus as their Messiah. And they would still go to the temple when the temple was still standing. Go back and look at Acts. Where did they go basically every day to pray? They went to the temple. Because the God of the Bible is still the God of ancient Israel. They would go, they would sit in synagogues, they would worship with other Jews on the Sabbath. They would go pray at the temple because... They were still Jews. They just recognized their Messiah. Well, the Jews who didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah thought that the Christians were blaspheming. And they did not like that these Christians were, in their perspective, masquerading as Jews. So what happens in AD 90 is the Jewish community... um, (coughs) issues, the, the leaders of the Jewish religion issue an official edict that distances themselves from the the sect of the Nazarene, from the Christians, and say, hey, publicly we want to make sure everybody understands the followers of Jesus are not Jews. They're not welcome in the synagogue. They're not welcome in the temple. They're not welcome in our houses. And they certainly should not get the same political and legal protections from the Roman Empire that the Jews do. For years, the Jewish religion had kind of a special place in the Roman Empire. Not because the Roman Empire loved them, but kind of for the other reason. That Rome initially tried to put the Jewish religion down and say, you'll worship the Roman gods like the rest of us. And the Jews said, oh no, we won't. We'll either kill you or die trying. If you're going to make us do this. So Rome finally said, okay, let's make a deal. We won't make you worship the Roman gods if you won't stab a Roman every time they walk by you. And the Jews said, okay, that's fair. 
So they paid the taxes. They didn't fight. Rome kind of let the Jews be the Jews. And the Jews kind of let the Romans be the Romans. And it was just live and let live. Well, the Christians had been enjoying this same special protection, sort of, because they were identifying as Jews. Well, the Jews said, we're tired of this. You're not Jews. You don't believe what we do. You don't think the way we do. So you shouldn't get the same protections we do. So ever since they did that, round about 80, 90-ish, Christians are now getting it on one side from the Roman religious cult, and they're getting it on the other side from the Jewish community that has now kicked them out of their synagogues. So they're getting persecuted on both sides. And when you put the Roman cult and the Jewish group together, that's pretty much everybody around you that's not a Christian. You were alone. You were isolated. What happens when you're isolated like that? Well, Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Your poverty. That this poverty doesn't just mean they're in a low socioeconomic class. The way that linguistically this is set up, Jesus is implying that you are impoverished because no one will hire you. No one will let you do commerce with them. That you're ostracized even from the economic system. That the word, one of the commentaries I was reading said there were levels of poverty that you could identify with the Greek language. And the particular word here means so broke you can't even rub two pennies together. That they had nothing. They're broke. Jesus says, I know your poverty, but you are what? Rich. Hang on, Jesus. I'm so broke that I can't even rub two denarii together and you're telling me that I'm rich? What in the world is going on here? Is Jesus suggesting some psychological reclassification be used as a coping mechanism? Guys, I know you're actually poor, but just close your eyes and repeat the mantra. I am rich. I am rich. I'm rich. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying do that. He's saying, I know you're, you're impoverished here. But you're actually rich. And then he talks about death. Look, look down at the few verses after that. He says, I know the Jews that are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you'll have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. That first Jesus redefined poverty and says, I know that it appears that you're impoverished here, but you're actually rich. And now Jesus says, be faithful until death and you will have the crown of life. There is not, there is not some supernatural crown that's just labeled life. The grammatic construction is, I will give you the Stephanos. The, the, the Greek word Stephanos means a garland. All right. If you were to run a marathon or you were to win an event, an athletic event in ancient Greece, then you would be given the Stephanos. You would be given the garland. It's the sign of a victor. It's the sign of someone who's won. So Jesus says, your reward for being faithful to death is the Stephanos, the crown, the prize of life. Your reward for dying is living. 
Kind of paradoxical, isn't it? You want to live, you've got to be willing to die. That Christ tells the Smyrna church to be prepared for death. Because on the other side of being faithful through death is life. And then he says victory. Look at verse, verse 11. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The last juxtaposition is overcoming and death. Jesus says that the ones who overcome won't be hurt by the second death, but he doesn't say anything about them escaping the first, does he? In fact, he just told them, be prepared to die. The word, what definition of victory do you know in the world that involves death? Death is generally, you know, defeat, isn't it? You think of death as defeat. That if I'm an overcomer, I ain't going to get put under. Overcomer, undertaker. They're kind of opposite. And yet here you have Jesus given us in these first verses, this is littered with paradoxes. I know you're poor, but you're actually rich. I know the Jews appear to be Jews, but they're actually the synagogue of Satan. I want you to be faithful to death so that you'll win the prize of life. Uh, if you overcome, the second death won't hurt you, even though the first one might. <coughs> What's going on? Jesus is actually telling you the way things really are for the church in Smyrna. Heaven has a viewpoint and earth has a viewpoint. They cannot both be right. They're mutually exclusive. Either the Smyrna Christians are actually impoverished or they're actually rich. Either the Jews really are the Jews or they're really not. Either death really is the end or it, that particular death really leads to life. Either they're overcoming or they're being defeated. Which is it? Jesus says heaven's viewpoint is right. In Smyrna, keep your eyes looking at life through the lenses of heaven. Have you ever... Do you know that the lens through which you view the world has a great effect on how you interpret objective facts? Let me give you an experiment, and I'm, and I'm walking on eggshells saying this, because I don't like bringing stuff up like this, but I think it would be an easily... Uh... Does which channel you watch the news on make a difference as to how the facts are interpreted? Why? It's the same facts, right? If it's the same facts, depending on the channel you watch... And I'm allowed to do this because I'm not going to stand behind the pulpit and make a practice of telling you which channel to watch. I'm just making a point that they're different. All right, you can take the same list of facts and depending on which newspaper you read, which channel you watch, which radio station you listen to, those facts can be interpreted in totally different ways, can't they? And you can reach totally different conclusions based on who is interpreting the facts. Let's not, even talk, let's not even talk about it uh, in terms of the news. Have you ever heard this before? If you go see a cardiologist, it's always going to be a problem with your heart. 
If you go see a neurologist, it's always going to be a problem with your brain. If you go see, uh, you know, uh, depending on the doctor you go to, if you go see an ENT, it's always something with you, with, with, with your nose or your head. Why? Because that's the lens that they look at the world through. That's the way they interpret the facts. Well, if you look at this life and you look at it from the perspective of this is all there is. This is the most important. What matters here matters most. If you look at life from that perspective, you're going to interpret all the facts way differently than the way Jesus does. See, from the Smyrna's earthly perspective, they were broke as the battery in my truck over there that won't start. They had nothing left in the tank. There's nothing there. But from Jesus' perspective, <clears throat> listen to this. Mark chapter 10, verses 29 through 31. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last in the last first. Jesus is saying, I know that your allegiance to me has cost you everything, or so you think. It has cost you things here. But you are wealthy in heaven. Jesus nowhere in the Bible promises us temporal wealth. He nowhere in the Bible promises us temporal health. He nowhere in the Bible promises us a simple easy, pain-free existence on this earth. In fact, if this passage tells you anything, it should be that more than likely you're going to experience the opposite. But what Jesus does promise us is what you suffer for my sake on this earth, don't focus on what you lose down here. Focus on what you've gained in the world to come. Your poverty here is nothing compared to your heavenly wealth. What you give up here for Christ is recompensed and more there. What about death? John 11, verses 25 through 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now hang on just a second. Jesus said, he who believes in him shall never die. Did any Raise your hand if you know somebody who believes in Jesus who has died. This is not a trick question. I do. I'm raising my hand. Does that mean that Jesus was wrong? No. That just means that Jesus has one definition of death and we have a different one. See, from Jesus' perspective, are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob dead? Now think about the New Testament. I, 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 I'm shooting from the hip right now. I probably shouldn't. Do you remember where Jesus said, I'm not the God, of the, God is not the God of the dead, but He's the God of the living? He's talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob right there. Apparently, from Jesus' perspective, they're just as alive now as they ever have been. 
The people that you know who passed away in Jesus Christ, I promise you, they're more alive right now than we are. From a Christian's perspective, the worst thing that can happen to us is for this body to shut down. That doesn't mean we're dead. From heaven's perspective, death is separation from the love and mercy and goodness of God in a place called hell. Christians will never experience that. That's what death is. So from Jesus' perspective, when you believe in Him, you never die. You will never experience hell. Your body shutting down is a temporary setback. Why do I I say that so flippantly? Y'all, I know death is serious. I know that it grieves us and it's painful and it hurts. The reason that it hurts is the separation. But long term... Y'all, our life on this earth is like a drop in the ocean. We're going to be somewhere, we're going to be here probably, statistics and tragedy averted, most of us are probably going to be here somewhere between 70 and 100 years. That's a wide range. Right? Okay, I'm, I'm playing the statistics. This New Testament was written almost 2,000 years ago. If you live to be 100, that's 20 lifetimes. Our lives are short. Very, very, very short. Eternity is very, very, very long. So whatever suffering you experience here, what Jesus is saying is, be faithful until death. This short, temporary death, and you will receive the crown of life. That you're not actually dying the way the world thinks you are. The world thinks it's done with you. The world thinks you're over. The world thinks it's ended. Meanwhile, you just merely step out of one life into a better one. One that the world can't touch. It's immutable, incorruptible. <clears throat> what about overcoming? 1 John 5, 4. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that, it, that has overcome the world. Our faith. That Jesus says, hey, victory is not living at any cost. Victory is faithfulness until the end. That is the ultimate victory. I guarantee you, you can pick <clears throat> Go throughout history. Think of, a, think of a powerful leader, maybe a political leader or a military leader. Think of a super successful athlete that accomplished everything in their life that they ever wanted to, that they were unbeatable. I'll, I'll share this story with you. Uh, any of y'all familiar with the name John Piper? He's the pastor of, uh, I think, Bethlehem Baptist Church. He's He's super, super well-known pastor. He's hyper-conservative. Um, and, and this little wiry guy that somehow when he preaches, it, it's like he's shooting an elephant gun out of his mouth. I don't know how he does it. Um, but <clears throat> um, 
I hope I'm not going to misquote him. I'm pretty sure it's him who said this, but I know a very prominent pastor did. I know y'all know Muhammad Ali, right? What was it Muhammad Ali was famous for saying? I am the greatest. The day he died, John Piper said, greatest, meet the most high. I went back, I watched Muhammad Ali box. There's a reason they called boxing the sweet science. Man was a machine. He was precise. He was a monster in the ring. And he succumbed to the frailness of age and death like every other human being. I guarantee you, based on the fact that Muhammad Ali did not profess Christ as his Savior before he died, I guarantee you Muhammad Ali would trade every heavyweight title. He would trade every win he ever experienced. He would trade every dollar he ever made to have five minutes to sit in that pew, hear the gospel being preached, and change his mind about what he did with it. He would trade everything he ever owned for that opportunity that we're enjoying right now. Overcoming is not winning. It's not buying. It's not owning. It is faithfulness to the end. That overcomes the world. Jesus says, have the correct perspective, Smyrna. I know you suffer. I know that you might die. I know that you're going to go through tribulation. I know that you're being blasphemed. I know that you're being mowed down, that you're being thrown to the lines, that you're being killed, but you're not poor. You're rich. You're not dead. You're alive. You're not being defeated. You're overcoming. Because don't worry about how they look at you. Worry about how I look at you. Christians have different perspectives. And then second, because we have a different perspective on things like poverty and and death and overcoming. And by the way, when I talk about poverty, maybe it's not economic poverty. Poverty refers to anything that your faithfulness to Christ costs you. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it is a job. Maybe it is money. Maybe you can't do certain things because that would cause you to be unfaithful to Christ. And you can't get economically ahead because of that, whereas somebody else could. Poverty. Things you give up for Christ. We have a different perspective that that causes us to live that way, or we should. And second, because of that differing perspective, Christians should live differently by doing two things. There are only two commands of Jesus in this passage, and that is for us to not fear and for us to be faithful. Those are the only two commands of Jesus in these four verses. Fun piece of Revelation trivia for you. Smyrna is one of only two churches in the seven letters that Jesus did not have something bad to say about. There's one other church. It's the church of Philadelphia. Not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but the first Philadelphia. Jesus had nothing bad to say about Smyrna. He had nothing bad to say about Philadelphia. Everybody else, he had something to correct. So Jesus gives these two commands to Smyrna, which effectively amount to keep on keeping on. First off in verse 10, let's go back to verse 10. I know that we're kind of going through it 
twice, but that's the structure of this passage makes it difficult to do that otherwise. So Jesus has said, hey, these things are going to happen to you. Look at verse 10. He says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. <clears throat> Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. But don't worry because I'm going to step in and I'm going to stop him from doing it. And y'all are all going to be healthy and happy and prosperous, right? Is that what Jesus said? No. He said, don't fear the things which are about to happen to you. You want to know an easy way to tell a lying preacher? They'll tell you that God's going to stop that bad thing that's about to happen. He doesn't always. He doesn't. Why? I don't know. But I know that he's good. And I know that he's wise. And I do know that heaven has one perspective and earth has another. And God thinks from the eternal viewpoint and we think from the temporal. And I can't explain why God everything's, does everything the way he does. But I can tell you that his goodness and grace will sustain you. And that he will walk through it with you. And that's why Jesus says... Don't fear. The devil is about to get a hold of you, Smyrna. He is about to make you suffer. He's going to throw you in prison and you're going to be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Now, some of the commentaries I read said this, this should be encouraging to Smyrna because Jesus says 10 days. That's a very definite limit. It's not going to be forever that they're going to be persecuted. Well, there are multiple ways that that time limit can end. That can end with their release. It can also end with their death. Either way, they're out of prison. But Jesus says, don't fear. Matthew chapter 10, verses 28 through 31, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus doesn't say don't fear because I'm going to stop it from happening. Jesus says don't fear because I'm going to walk through it with you. I'm going to be there with you. When you go, wait, Jesus, why don't you stop it from happening? This person's going to die. I'm going to die. What did we just learn about death from the Christian perspective? When you have that fear in you, I don't want to minimize the gravity of what you might be about to go through, whether it's sickness, whether it's loss of a job, whether it's family trouble, whether I, I, I don't know. When you suffer through something like that, keep the eternal perspective that Jesus might not stop it, but he's also not going to send you through it alone. That he's going to walk with you and his presence is greater than whatever suffering you're going to be enduring. That the comfort that Jesus gives you is, hey, 
The worst that anything on this earth can do is touch your body. It cannot touch your soul. There's only one who can do that. And he's the one who's walking through the suffering with you. So you have no need to fear. So first he says, don't fear in the face of tribulation. Because once you're looking through life with the perspective that heaven is greater than earth, my reward there is greater than my suffering here. Jesus says, be faithful. In Stapleton, as your pastor, this is my heart for this church. This is what I want for us. <clears throat> because the Christian life can get stressful when you make it about performance. Get extremely stressful. Uh, Jesus says uh, in, in verse 10, the end of verse 10, He says, Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus says be faithful. He doesn't ask them to escape. He doesn't ask them to win an election. He doesn't ask them to take up arms and defend their rights. He tells them to be faithful. We go into a panic. Oh my goodness, how are we going to accomplish this? We don't have enough people to do it. How are we going to, to do this? We don't have enough money to do this. How are we going to reach this community when they're involved in this and this and this and this and this and we're not able to compete? Jesus says, I've got good news for you, Stapleton. I don't want you to compete. I'm not out for you to quote unquote perform. I'm not sitting up in heaven doing number crunching. Were they a good return on investment for my blood? Jesus says, I want you to be faithful. I want you to be true to me. I want you to remain faithful to me. I want you to stick to what I said. Stick to what I told you to do. And you continue to be faithful to me even when it hurts. And even when you get mocked for doing it. Even when it looks like there's no hope. Is there ever a limit that I want for your faithfulness? No. I want you to be faithful until death. And what's the reward for that? Life. You do understand that faithfulness in Christianity makes it impossible to fail. Makes it impossible to fail. Say, well, Josh, you don't know. I've tried to share the gospel with my next door neighbor three or four times, and they keep telling me no. They keep telling me no. They keep telling me no. I keep failing. You didn't fail. Jesus didn't ask you to convert them, did he? He asked you to be faithful to share the gospel. Faithfulness is what you did. Leave the results up to Him. He said, don't be afraid. And be faithful. Just keep on keeping on. <coughs> I'll close with this. Um, if you go back, now this is where diverging from the Bible into church history, which is of course not inspired and therefore not infallible or inerrant. But following the annals of church history, the Apostle John had a disciple whose name was Irenaeus, kind of his youngin that he was training. Um, after Irenaeus, who knew John, um, I think I'm actually getting them backwards. Yes, 
John discipled a man named Polycarp, and Polycarp discipled a man named Irenaeus. And Irenaeus actually writes stories. Uh, not stories, but he writes records. And we've got these of sitting there at Polycarp's feet, listening to him tell stories about the Apostle John. And saying, hey, John used to teach us this. He used to tell us that Jesus would do these things. That these were, these were real men, and there were men that came after them. Well, Polycarp was actually a pastor of the church in Smyrna. And it's very possible, based on the age at which Polycarp died, and the time when this was written, Polycarp would have either would have been somewhere between 70 and 100, but Polycarp was probably the pastor of the church that received this letter from Jesus. Um, that we know Polycarp was the pastor, um, and we know that Polycarp was martyred. Polycarp was murdered for his faith for Jesus Christ. And, um, the account of his death reads that he was brought before the crowd and the tribune tells him, renounce your faith and I'll let you go. And he says, I've served Christ for 86 years of my life and he's never done me wrong. Why would I blaspheme him now? Even at the cost of my own life. And he said, Polycarp, I've got animals. I'll throw you to them. He says, the worst you can do is destroy my body. Do what you will. I'm not going to revile Christ. And the crowd was incensed by this. And the tribune said, well, if you don't want the animals, then I'll burn you alive. He said, you threaten me with this fire because you're not aware of the fire that you can't escape. He said, don't do this. He says, I don't fear this fire and I have no reason to fear the greater fire. Burn my body if you like. I'm not denying Christ. And so Polycarp was martyred. He was burned alive. Smyrna. He wasn't the only one. But Jesus told the truth. It was coming. And he walked through it with me. And he will walk through it with you. Keep your perspective from heaven down rather than keep your perspective vertical rather than horizontal. In your church, in your personal life, in your evangelism. Look at your life through heaven's eyes. But if you're here today and you don't know Christ, I want to encourage you to do the same thing. Jim and Miss Joyce are going to come lead us in a couple verses of an invitation here. I just want to remind you, if you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ, you've only ever looked at the world through a horizontal perspective. That you're trying to get ahead, you're trying to make it in this world, because this world is all you've got. Let me encourage you to take a minute and look at your life through heaven's eyes and consider that maybe there's a world to come that is greater and more important than this one. And I want to tell you about Jesus who loves you enough to purchase your way into that life. If you want to talk to me about coming to Jesus, being forgiven of your sin, and having that guarantee, um, you can come down this aisle, you can chat with me, you can fill out the guest card on the side of your bulletin when the offering plate comes by, or you can catch me at the back door. Don't leave without talking to me if you, if you want to talk about that. So I'm going to pray. If you need to come, you come. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to get here together. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church, help us as individuals, as families. 
to look at our lives through the perspective of heaven, Lord, that this world is short, it's temporary, um, and you desire us to look at it the way you do, to value the eternal more than the temporal, to be faithful until death, and to not fear whatever might happen to us here, because it's a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. That what you have for us is so much greater than anything we could endure here. Lord Jesus, I pray for those in here who don't have that because they don't know you. Lord, I pray that you would call them to yourself and say, look at what you would do me. Jesus, we thank you for the privilege of being here and Lord, that you've granted us the grace to exist as a church right now. To enjoy you in this place. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>